afternoon. I invite you uh, to the webinar of INDIC today. This is the second in the series of Reading History Right. In today's seminar, we have host Shafali Vedya, who will be in conversation with Anish Gokhale. Um, we are essentially have attempted to start the series with an effort to understand what is history, what should be written, what should be read. Uh, in the first session, we had had discussion with uh, Sahana Vijay Kumar, who had written uh, a book on Kashmir and the current socio-economic poli uh, politics in Kashmir. In today's session, we have a young and upcoming author, Anish Gokhale, who is going to be, uh, who has recently published a new book called Battles of the Maratha Empire. I shall share. On the screen, his latest book, Battles of the Maratha Empire. And we will be talking today about uh, what has been the narrative of the uh, Maratha history in, a, uh, in our um, uh, publishing industry. What are, what are the different historians who have written and actually say uh, what are the parts of the history of the uh, Maratha Empire which have not been written much or not discussed much? Uh, what is the reason to do so? And uh, in today's discussion, uh, Shafali is also going to discuss a little bit about uh, the aspect of the, uh, who should write history. In the recent weeks, there has been much uh, discussion in uh, media about who is entitled to talk about history. And we have seen a lot of uh, discussions ab about uh, people like um, uh, uh, True Endology uh, who are not given the true correct place uh, hold in writing history or other upcoming hist uh, authors who are not being heard because they are not quote unquote historians in the traditional sense of things. So these are some of the questions that we'd be discussing. I hand over to Shafali um, uh, to continue the discussion. Thank you so much, Yogini. And uh, it's indeed a pleasure to be in conversation with uh, Anish Gokhale. I've read his books and uh, he's definitely a prolific writer. And uh, I think this is your third book, right, Anish? Yes, correct. Third book. Okay, yeah. And you have handled very diverse subjects like uh, the Maratha Empire. Then you moved on to Assam. Your second book was about Lachit Burfukan. And now you are talking about the most famous battles of the Maratha Empire, which is a very fascinating subject. Uh, but let me begin at the beginning and ask you the question, which I think most people ask you in, in interviews. It's like, what is a merchant navy officer, somebody who is in charge of navigation in uh, merchant navy? What is a merchant navy officer doing with history writing? So once again, uh, thank you to everyone. Uh, Thank you, Indic Academy, and uh, thank you to you also for uh, organizing this uh, webinar on Maratha history. So, as you mentioned the question as to what brought me into history, it has been my hobby right from childhood to read. I've read a lot of books and uh, 
also it has been a hobby to do trekking and hiking especially after 10th to 11th standard so trekking and hiking actually got me into Maratha history got me interested because all the hill forts you see Rajgarh, Raigarh, Pratapgarh around Maharashtra they piqued my interest and once I had read a couple of books of course that interest kept going up and eventually that is my first book that is Sayadris to Hindu Kush which was written about now seven eight years ago uh, now it's 24 and I took some time to write it because I wasn't very sure as to how well is it going to be received but uh, my first book uh, came out and after that of course I got the confidence to write more and read more about it on historical subjects which led to the second book that is of uh, Lachit Borfukan uh, which I've titled Brahmaputra and in the same way in, uh, now I have my third book that is Battles of the Maratha Empire. The third book is very fascinating actually and uh, in the book you have dealt with topics which are of a lot of interest to history enthusiasts and also to common citizens alike. For example, the very first chapter deals with Shivaji Maharaj and the science of hill forts. Anybody who has done any trekking in Maharashtra or anybody who has visited even a single, single hill fort of Shivaji Maharaj will understand what a masterful planning goes into the, the maintenance and building of a hill fort. So would you like to talk a little about it? Right. So actually this uh, third book of mine is uh, more of a top-down effort. The other two books I started by writing, uh, deciding on a topic and then I decided, you know, this is what the book is going to be about. And then I went about writing that book from page one onwards. Uh, as far as Battles of the Maratha Empire is concerned, I have had the privilege and the opportunity to write for a number of publications over the past uh, few years. Courtesy again, uh, Indic Academy. Uh, I've written for publications such as uh, Swarajya, such as India Facts, such as uh, TFI Post. And uh, over a period of time, I wrote numerous articles. Some of them have found their way into this book. This says that they are a compilation because I realized that over a period of three, four years, I've actually managed to cover quite a bit of Maratha history. And so this essentially is about uh, compiling some of those articles together. Uh, the first chapter of course starts with Chhatrapati Shivaji and his hill forts. Since I wanted to have a book that gives a concise introduction to the whole of Maratha history. What usually happens is that uh, people who have read about Chhatrapati Shivaji are ignorant about Chhatrapati Sambhaji and Rajaram. People hmm. who have read about Rajaram, they will uh, find Pesha Bajirao's exploit something very surprising to hear about. If somebody has read a book about Peshaw Bajirao, he will be totally ignorant about Peshaw Madhurao and Maharaji Sindhya. So, usually uh, the kind of doubts that get asked by people on Maratha history, to clear all those doubts, you need to supply them with 10 or 15 books, which That's a lay person not really like to go through. I mean, if I am suggested to read 15 books to clear 5 doubts, I am not going to do it. So. In this sense, actually, uh, came the idea of the book that something that covers everything from Chhatrapati Shivaji to the uh, last page of Ajira is something required uh, today's day and age, which is why I put together this book. And uh, starting, of course, with the hill forts, which is very important. We go up the hill forts, we trek. But what really was the thought process behind it? What made them invincible? 
because Chhatrapati Shivaji's forts made him invincible is a very common statement to make. But what was the planning behind them? What thought process went behind it is what I've covered in the first chapter. Okay, could you talk a little more about it uh, in in short? What what is that uh, thought process that you're talking about? Right. So in uh, Agnya Patra, Agnya Patra is a book which was written much later in 1715 uh, by Ramchandra Pant uh, who was actually a junior minister under Chhatrapati Shivaji. And he has written a book called Adnya Patra, which is the administrative system of Chhatrapati Shivaji. And he says that the hill forts are the bedrock of Swarajya. Swarajya is Sarathya Durga. And as to why is this the situation, we understand when we study these forts from a scientific angle, as to how were they able to fight Mughals for 27 years fight various powers is because Chhatrapati Shivaji made certain changes, made uh, certain innovations which were unique and which really made them invincible fortresses. People before Chhatrapati Shivaji also had those forts in hands because those hills have existed for millennium and thousands of years. And even prior to Chhatrapati Shivaji, there were people who were in charge of these forts, but then they lost to invading armies. So Shivaji Maharaj had to do something by which not only did he capture those forts, but he also managed to hold on to them in the face of invasion. Hmm. And that is where the true genius of Shivaji Maharaj lies, that he equipped those forts, he made administrative changes, he made structural changes to those forts, which enabled them to last a full 27 to 30 years after he had passed away. Okay. So what he made was policy changes. What he made was uh, changes that would not be dependent on the singular person or personality for the success of the forts. Okay. So this is extremely interesting. And uh, in the answer to this question, I think you touched upon something very important. You said that people who study Marathi history do it in bits and pieces. So there are people who are only aware of Shivaji Maharaj, who are only, some people are only aware of Peshwa Bajra, particularly after that movie that came in, suddenly there was a lot of interest in Bajra, you know. Even before people who hadn't heard of Bajra suddenly wanted to read more about Peshwa Bajra, the first, Thorle Bajra. Or uh, some people only hear about Panipat battle, again, thanks to a movie. It's so sad, actually. But there is no there is no one continuous narrative. People in Maharashtra probably do know. But people outside, they do not know the Maratha history in its entirety. Starting from Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj and ending with actually uh, when uh, the British defeated uh, Peshwa Bajirao too. And they became the rulers of uh, India. So there is also this misconception and uh, you, you talk about this in the answer to the same question that when the British came to India, the most commonly held misconception in India is that when the British came to India, the Mughals were still ruling and the British took over this country from the Mughals, not from the Marathas. So uh, talk a little about this flow of history from Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj to the end of Maratha Empire and how when the British came to India, what was the map of uh, India? Right. So as I mentioned, uh, yes, this is correct. Uh, your uh, Maratha history gets studied in silos, especially outside of Maharashtra. For yeah. us also in Maharashtra, it is over a period of uh, time, over 15-20 years of being in uh, Maharashtra that we managed to somehow uh, read up on this history in bits and pieces. Like what today, read one book, tomorrow some other book. Uh, people who are not from Maharashtra will not tend to read 
so much of Maratha history. In that, they might read one book on Maratha history and then the next book could be on some other topic and then the next book could be on some third topic. So this discontinuity, of course, exists, uh, which is why this effort has been made that you put everything in one book. Uh, coming to the British, now the British came uh, to India in 1608, that early. 1600 was the year they got the charter from that uh, king. And uh, then 1608, a ship called Hector dropped anchor off Surat. Very interestingly, the first battle they fought was in 1612, 1612, that early. Four years after landing on India's shores, they fought their first battle. Not with an Indian power, but with the Portuguese. Hmm. This was a very small skirmish, 10 or 15 boats were involved. Nobody was interested in it, except the Portuguese and the English battle. The Mughals hardly knew about it. From then onwards, of course, they became traders in India. And the Mughals dominated most of India from 1600 right up to 1705. After this, we have the Maratha Empire. They have fought a 27-year war, which I have covered in that book. Uh, from 1680 to 1707, Aurangzeb himself came to the Deccan. That's and, right. Uh, in fact, from 1682, actually arrived here. Uh, 1682 to 1707, Aurangzeb was personally present in the Deccan, trying to capture the whole of South India. And uh, he failed to do that. But in the course of the war, he lost thousands upon thousands of men. A lot of money was incurred, uh, expenses were incurred in this war. And as a result, the Mughal Empire became totally hollow from the inside. Then the next 10 years were spent by the Marathas to consolidate themselves. From 1720 onwards, of course, you have this brilliant general called Peshwa Bajira, who then manages to expand northwards. Mm. By 1737, there is already one attack on Delhi. By 1738, there is a treaty at Bhopal, somewhere near Bhopal with the Nizam, where the Nizam and the Mughal Emperor concede the entire tract from the Narmada to the Champal to the Marathas. Slightly prior to that, Bundelkhand is also with Vishwabhajra. In that, uh, the story of Mastani takes place, but that is a side story. The main point is that one third of Bundelkhand comes to the Marathas and there is a letter by Vishwabhajra to to his brother Chimaji Appa, where he says that now Maratha horses have reached all the way up to Yamuna. Yeah. So you can see within the reign of Peshwa Bajira, uh, the Maratha managed to reach Yamuna, managed to reach Delhi. After him, there is Narasa Peshwa. During his rule, of course, the Maratha Empire expands all the way to Lahore and Atok. And on the east, we have Raghuji Bhosle of Nagpur, who extends his kingdom and Maratha rule up to Katak, which is in Orissa. And in fact, uh, the province of Orissa is given up to the Marathas in 1751 and it stays with them right up to 1803. So, by and large, when the British win Plassey in 1757, the picture of India is that everything from roundabout Tungabhadra in the south, in fact, even further south of that, north up to Atok region, and east of yes. the region is with the Marathas. So about 70% of the landmass is Maratha dominated. And the Mughal has been reduced to a titular ruler. That's right. 
I come back to the Mughal ruler. Uh, of course, 1761, there is a theory. I mean, it is quite possible what would have happened is that the Mughal emperor would have been removed and the Peshwa or his appointee would have sat on the Delhi throne, which of course did not transpire because the battle was lost. A very interesting thing happened between 1761 and 1772. 1764 is Battle of Baksar, which was fought at a place called Baksar in Bihar. Now, this is very common knowledge that the British under Clive, they defeated the Mughal Emperor Shah Alam and the Nawab of Awadh. The combined forces of the Nawab of Awadh and the Mughal Emperor were defeated at Baksar by the English. It is very interesting that what happens in the seven years after this boxer, it's something that is totally absent from our textbooks, is that Shah Alam continues to be in Ilabad. Because after Panipat, Najibuddaullah takes hold of Delhi and there is no post for Shah Alam left. So now Shah Alam is in Ilabad waiting for the English to take him to Delhi. He is waiting for Robert Clive to take him all the way to Delhi. And this doesn't happen for six, seven years. Eventually, it is Maharaji Sinde or Maharaji Sindhya who takes Shah Alam to Delhi and puts him back on the throne as a titular ruler. For, further on, we find in 1788, the Maratha flag is actually flying on the Red Fort and it continues mm -hmm. in 1803. And it is the British who managed to defeat a Maratha army, which have covered the Battle of Laswari and Battle of Delhi who managed to defeat Maratha armies in North India to take control of Delhi, Aligarh, Agra and all these places. In fact, in 1803, we find in 1857, of course, we find the Bahadur Shah Zafar is fated very royally for, um, you know, being a freedom fighter and the Mughals fought against the British, etc, etc, is a big narrative that is put in front of us for 1857. In 1803, a very different thing happened, which is not very early, about 50 years prior. The British were actually called into Delhi by the Mughal Emperor and the Mughal Prince Akbar II went out of the Red Fort and received General Gerard Lake into the city and gave him a red carpet welcome with a trumpet and band and a procession to the Red Fort where the Mughal granted him titles like Bahadur Fateh Jang and other such sounding things, after which the Mughal Emperor came under a British pension from 1803. So this is how we find that the British actually were fighting the Marathas, not only in North but also South India to capture them, uh, to capture India from the Marathas. See, uh, from what you have said, and this is the accurate historical reading actually, but unfortunately, the narrative again uh, in the mainstream historical uh, narrative that has been pushed down our throats by the historians of India is that the defeat of Panipat is like the end of it. It broke the back of Marathas. After that, nothing significant happened. And they don't even give due respect to somebody as brilliant as uh, Peshwa Madhavrao who actually rebuilt the entire kingdom and also the, the implication of the Battle of Panipat that from then on, there were no more invasions from Afghanistan and India and it's no, uh, no small feat. So why do you think this, there is this uh, 
this agreed that the battle of panipat is a watershed moment in maratha history but a maratha history does not stop there so why is that one defeatist moment being tomtomed as the 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 major thing in maratha history why do you think that as it is it uh, is it is it deliberate is it uh, is I, I, what do you think is the rationale behind Right. So first, Panipat was a huge defeat for the Marathas, and not just for the Marathas, but for the whole of India, in fact, because a very different uh, kind of politics would have happened if that victory had gone through. Yes. Yes. Uh, Politics-wise, but even military uh, progress. Yeah, the the whole map of India today would have been different if that battle was not lost. Again, it is a combination of two things. Uh, one is uh, having this defeatist attitude, where you find that. In especially uh, the era from 50s to 70s, 80s, a lot of books are written about how uh, India was defeated by various invasions, hmm. uh, which has now slowly started changing. Hmm. Uh, now it has again started changing back to kind of literature that was being published in 20s and 30s, uh, which talks about a more uh, victorious, uh, you know, response to invasions. So these basically uh, is one reason that a defeatist. One thing is that we ourselves have made Panipat a big issue, so it has again stayed within its silo, within its own compartment of Panipat. Hmm. Book on Panipat will never talk about the rejuvenation after Panipat. Yeah, that's true. So a person who picks up and reads only about Panipat will not have any knowledge about what happened ten years after that. That's right. And uh, Pesha Madhav Rao's rule is very significant because it starts in 1761 uh, to end of it. Uh, very young, he's only 18 years old at the time. In fact, only 17, and he manages to steer this Maratha Empire back to its uh, previous uh, situation of the previous power within this 10 years of rule from 16, uh, 1761 to 1771, 72. The Marathas regain their pride and honor in North India and South India. But again, why it is not taken, uh, why it is not known? One is this defeatist mentality because we cannot show victories. Hmm. Second is, of course, Panipat, Pesho Madhavrao, and Mahaji Shinde. These three topics exist in three different books. And a book which will say that Panipat was a defeat, but Pesho Madhavrao and Mahaji Shinde was were the reasons of the Maratha rejuvenation will not come together. So, hmm. narrative created stops at Panipat and doesn't progress further. Okay. It's sad, no, that some of our most glorious chapters of history were deliberately hidden from us and instead we, are only, we ourselves only started showcasing the worst battles. Sure, that did happen, but we also had moments of great victory. Uh, you mentioned about the Indian, the Maratha Empire being spread from Atak to Katak. So, could you talk a little bit about uh, the Maratha impact on Odisha and particularly on the Temple of Jagannath? Right. So, basically, the Maratha invasions of Bengal and Odisha at a time uh, in 1740s, Bengal Subha meant what is today's West Bengal, what is today's Bangladesh, today's Odisha, and parts of Bihar. So this mm -hmm. is what Bengal meant during those times. In fact, this is what it continued as right up to uh, British times also, the much later that we found that the 
separate provinces of Bihar, uh, Bengal, and Odisha. So this huge province was under one uh, Nawab of Bengal, Ali Wardi Khan. And the Maratha entry into Bengal actually is the result of some infighting within the, uh, the Mughal kingdom of Bengal. We had one uh, Persian general from Orissa, he was a subedar of Orissa. He came up to uh, Raghuji Bhosle of Nagpur. He was around 1742, I believe. And he, in fact, invited Raghuji Bhosle into Orissa because there was a lot of anarchy over there. And he did not want the Nawab of Bengal's rule. From 1742 to 1751, we have a time period where the Marathas have done about 10 or 15 raids into this province. And this is where Bargirs come in. Now the Bargirs are basically uh, what we call today non-state actors. See, the Marathas did not have a proper professional army since the days of Chhatrapati Shivaji. Shivaji Maharaj had built a very strong professional salaried army. That did not exist 100 years later because of various factors. And uh, so the Bargirs, of course, were part of the Maratha army, but at the same time not really controlled by them. So there were something like, you know, uh, your forces or people you require to do kind of jobs which the normal army cannot do. And unfortunately for Bengal, the Maratha period did not extend beyond this Bargir raiding. Because in 1751, the Bengal Nawab gave up Orissa to Aragaji Bhosle. Okay. And uh, Bengal was no longer troubled by the raids of Marathas. In Orissa, of course, we find that the Jagannath Puri temple now came under Maratha control. Now, very interesting about uh, the Jagannath Puri temple is the history of this temple in the 500-600 years preceding 1751. We find that the temple was attacked no less than 18 number of times, one eight. Yeah. times the temple was attacked by various forces. Fifteen of those times were some or the other Turkic or Afghan ruler. I'll try to sound politically correct here. So <laughs> I call them Turkish and Afghan rulers, but we know what I'm talking about. So yeah. uh, 16 times those uh, raids by this couple of times were by actual uh, Hindu rulers. The first time was the raid by Hindu ruler was sometime in the 9th century. Uh, what he did was that he simply took the idols away into his own territory, which was somewhere in Andhra Pradesh, and installed them over there. Hmm. All the invasions involving the Afghan rulers were about attacking the idols. Hmm. In fact, it was not just about the wealth of the temple, it was actually about the idols. Because hmm. uh, Jagannath Puri temple idols have something known as Padartha. Hmm. And that is the actual holy object which nobody knows what it looks like because even the priests at the temple have to do the ceremony blindfolded. That's right. The ceremony, I think it last happened 2001, 2002 something. No, no, a couple of years also it happened. It right. happens when the when the Ashada comes in the Adik Mas. That is 2015. I thought it was that. Anyway, so yeah. uh, 18 invasions. And every time you find that the idols or the padartha was taken away 
it was taken away either south many times it was taken to chilka lake and uh, support support uh, the invasion we find that the invaders they went to the temple transacted they find that the idol is not there some of the invaders mm. such as kala pahad actually traveled all the way to chilka lake to chase that idol and to burn mm. it so this is the kind of history that precedes uh, the maratha occupation of odisha that's 1622 in fact aurangzeb gave an order for leveling the temple of jagannath puri to the ground mm-hmm. which is already done in mathura and kashi now he mm-hmm. gave an order but in 1692 he was totally occupied with the war against the marathas so mm-hmm. some subordinate officer went there to do this job and he was bribed out of it somehow mm-hmm. 1732 was the last time that an actual attack took place which is very close to 1751 1732 we find that the last time an invader actually came and troubled the temple every now and then you will find that the temple was not troubled when uh, the local ruler realized that the pilgrim revenue isn't coming in so we have to realize that when the marathas take over jagannath puri they are actually are uh, going to undo something that has been happening for past 800 900 years and has seen 18 invasions mm-hmm. okay so now under the marathas the jagannathpuri temple got a complete rejuvenation plenty uh, of gold donations were given by raghuji bosle to the temple uh, there was a village called daspalla where the timber was very good this timber was used for making the chariot wheels of the okay. jagannath paryatrata uh, the bosles of nagpur made that village tax free okay so that they can you know make better wheels and supply them to the this ratyatra uh, there were bhog and annashetra established by the maratha rule the marathas improvised the road coming from bengal into jagannath puri and in fact you find that during this period of maratha rule uh, bengali merchants have also donated land and money to the jagannath puri mm. because of the change condition which made it a much more secure place true uh, very true also about 1760 of course you find that uh, 1760 up to 1803 we had maratha governors in odisha hmm 1851 to 1760 for 8 9 years we had the former mughal rulers uh, mughal governors allowed to continue with their jobs 1760 onwards okay. that uh, raghuji bosle or in fact the bosles of nagpur appointed maratha governors into odisha okay at that time jagannath puri had a cultural rejuvenation there were donations made for yatra yatra there was donations made for the jhulana festival uh, and uh, there were in fact even donations of gold and silver idols made by one gosavi if you go to the jagannath puri temple you find there is a big pillar on front of the main gate hmm. called the arun stamp hmm. that's arun right has been brought by the marathas from konark to puri konark is about one hour drive okay. so the charge in fact the claim that the british discovered konark is wrong hmm. it is similar to the claim made by british regarding hampi or even angkor wat for that matter Uh, sure. <laughs> also, in Hampi, also you find that people were actually going and worshiping the Narsimha uh, Murti, which is today very. That's right. Famous. Yeah. Uh, 
so this so called uh, this i am very wary of this subject this uh, statement that this thing was discovered by the british of course the local people were always aware even in ajanta they were the locals were aware that there were caves it's okay that these guys have went and made a systematic study of it and then brought it in front of the world that's okay but that doesn't mean that they discovered it local people did know that they existed the, the benchmark for this statement is british discovered mahabaleshwar yes actually <laughs> and uh, it is impossible not to notice mahabaleshwar once you are somewhere on the panchali plateau that's right <laughs> which is very close so i mean it's very difficult to say that discovered so coming back to marathas uh, they of course knew that arun uh, konark temple existed and konark temple back then even at the time of marathas or today is basically a defunct temple there is no idol of the sun god inside mm-hmm. and it is actually a very good example konark and puri if you go to konark which is basically a tourist site mm-hmm. it is not a functional temple it works that's right temple. its only revenue is people coming take photographs and going back yeah puri is a living and breathing place with a functional temple that's right when you see the contrast between a ruined temple like konark and a living city like puri you understand the importance of activities done by somebody like devi ayilabai holkar hmm is that that's right temples did not just mean a place of worship but they actually like today they impact over about the entire system over the entire town and they supported and a rejuvenated a lot of industries around themselves and same case is with the puri temple which the marathas in their tenure from 1760 1751 to 1803 really managed to rejuvenate and unfortunately uh, nowhere near that arun stamba will you find a simple line like saying that the marathas brought this pillar from kona uh, nowhere at jagannath puri temple will you find a mention that the marathas uh, did the cultural rejuvenation of the province you will not notice that the uh, konark temple also which of course is a very sad thing and uh, hopefully it changes uh, uh okay now let me come to a slightly different topic you said in this just in this answer that aurangzeb had given a firman a royal order for the demolition of the jagannath puri temple just like he had demolished the temples of mathura and vrindavan right and we have countless firmans of aurangzeb banning music imposing jizya on hindus everybody knows that he was a fanatic and he hated kafirs with a vengeance there is enough evidence he himself has left enough evidence and yet you will find and recently there was a controversy i will uh, deal with it very briefly in lok satta the head of the department of the history department of uh, pune university wrote an article in which he uh, presented a document which was not even a royal firman it was some document in farsi which was a small administrative order and on basis of that order which was related to a local issue she made a statement that aurangzeb uh, she implied a statement that aurangzeb was not a hindu hater and he was uh, you know he respected temples he respected hindus and all that and after that there was a controversy people gave proofs and said that this is not a royal firman and all of that but a raging controversy erupted 
where people with degrees, PhD degrees, and who were teaching history in different uh, institutions, they came out with this position. Many people, not all of them, but many people came out of this position that only formally trained people it are, can be called historians and only they have the right to talk about history or to write about history or to write books and only they can be taken seriously. It doesn't matter if you read the same primary resources that they do, if your study is as important or even more than theirs, but just because they have a PhD and they are teaching history in some institutions, only their version of history should be considered official. Do you agree with it? Okay, I'll make a couple of statements here. Uh, first thing is that uh, most of these people, uh, degree holding historians, uh, they don't have to deal with other real world problems such as a boss, subordinates, <laughs> the market. Okay. Now, secondly, uh, I've been merchant navy for about six, seven years now. I taught my class before I joined the field. Okay. And uh, I felt I knew everything because I was 20 something. <laughs> I joined my first ship and on my first day, the captain called me and he said, okay, what was your training is that? I said, I topped a class. He said, okay, fine, you take that certificate, fold it and keep it aside. <laughs> because this is a different field altogether. And what you do in your job now onwards is what is going to matter. Secondly, uh, if your subordinates, there is a hierarchy in any profession, there is a hierarchy. I don't know about historian, but in any profession, there is a hierarchy. Is that there is somebody who is above you, there is somebody who is below you. Of course, there is a point where you are above everybody else and then that's a different place altogether. But more or less about hierarchy. Uh, if your subordinates have to teach you something, or if your subordinates find out that you don't have the requisite knowledge for a job. Everybody who's in the corporate sector or in any kind of job knows what that feeling is. At the same time, why do you respect your seniors? I am second officer in Merchant Navy. Now I respect my chief officer and my captain. Why? Because he has a certain knowledge set, a certain skill set, which I simply don't have. There are going to be times when I am going to be not be there experience wise or knowledge wise to tackle a situation when I have to call my seniors to help me out. And it's not just my field, I think this is common for all the fields. Point on that your knowledge has to show yourself to be superior to the others. Okay. Now, if these historians, when lay people are discussing something, if these historians can come there and show that their knowledge or their sources, their uh, skill set is something above the rest of us, then of course they will have natural respect. Your respect cannot just be earned by showing a degree. I mean, you have to show, okay, I, I am more knowledgeable than you. But now what do you find? The doctor somebody comes and an XYZ somebody comes and uh, rips him apart on Facebook. I do not know how to respect such a fellow. Okay, I understand that a doctor, somebody comes and he says something, okay, your initial respect will be there. But then once that is countered, when that is countered, you cannot say my degree is important. No, it's not. Hmm. Your degree is important only up to a point. Like my degree was important till I got promotion. After that, I had to manage on my own. No? 
Now, my question is also that, okay, if you're calling yourself a historian, and most of the historians nowadays, they don't do any primary research, right? The primary research, they also base their their research or whatever, their research paper, based on, for example, if you take Maratha history. So they are also going to read Vyasatka Sardesai, they are also going to read Gaha Khare, they are also going to read Jantanath Sarkar, and they are only also going to read all the historians who have done tremendous work before. And those historians didn't really care for a PhD or a degree or whatever. They were actually concerned about going through primary historical Aitiasik uh, Sadhana uh, uh, and read them and uh, write their books. So these guys are reading their research which is exactly, and that uh, that resource is open for everybody. You and I can also read and you and I do read, people like you and I. So if I am reading the same resources as somebody with a PhD degree uh, is reading, then how does that degree make that person more qualified to talk about a certain subject? If I have read the exact same uh, Kagat Patra that that person has, is my question. This kind of gatekeeping that you're talking about, which is there in every field, I agree, right? From writing to academia to wherever. But saying that we are superior just because we have a piece of paper that says doctor something, something. And even though you have read the same information, even though you may have done more research on the given subjects, you are not qualified to talk about it. it is that kind of moral superiority? Is that kind of attitude? That is what I think uh, there is a real problem with. Uh, so again, you know, any book, any book is as good as its sources. Yeah. That's the basic point. If I write a book with certain sources, it is going to be as good as the book that you write with the same sources. That is true. The book can be better if you bring a better source. Right? Very if true. I write a book based on sources from G.S. Sardesai and you write a book based on, say, the Shiv Bharat, which is a more contemporary source. And you actually put that Sanskrit in the book. Hmm. Then, yes, I will agree that you have more knowledge than me and you have access to knowledge that I don't have. Which is in uh, talking about creating respect. Simply the degree is not going to bring you that Fair respect. Enough. Create that Fair respect, enough. showing your knowledge, which is something they are not able to do. Which is very funny that uh, historians come on Facebook and Twitter and they get schooled by everybody and then they go back and start saying all these things. So, what I would like to say is that uh, People, non-historian historians, you basically your sources should be in their place. Uh, you need to be able to show that your respect has to be derived out of the knowledge knowledge you're putting forward in front of the people. Either it is something other people have not read or it is a skill set that other people don't have. Like for example, uh, we find that people who knew Farsi were actually telling them what is written over here. Hmm. That's and, uh, right. Important because now you have a skill set which I don't have. That's right. Rely on somebody's translation of that Farsi document. Uh, you are going to be able to read that Farsi document. Automatically, it means that your knowledge and skill set is something worth respecting and something that will derive respect instead of just having a degree. Your degree very, very true. That's, that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, Last part, I would like to talk to you about two things. One is uh, there is, again, there is a very conscious attempt to create a narrative that the Peshpai was a totally Brahminical rule and that it was not fair and trying to fit in with these days, you know, the woke uh, SJW narrative. 
but they are not talking that uh, somebody like malara holkar who came from a shepherd community could become a independent ruler in his own right simply because peshwa bajira first recognized his talent and his daughter in law hilla bai holkar did so much of work for hindus she didn't do it for brahmins or for shepherds or for marathas or for kshatriyas so could you talk to uh, us a little bit about that yeah Again, come back to the same point is that we uh, tend to see a differentiation from Chhatrapati Rajaram, uh, Chhatrapati Sambhaji, Chhatrapati Shivaji on one side, and then you find the Peshwai on the other side. So it is actually one continuous stream, one continuous uh, line of rulers. And uh, yes, compared to modern times, yes, that uh, Peshwai or the times were more casteists, but then there were more casteists all over the country. That's true. In fact, uh, there are very few examples of somebody from the Dhangar caste managing to become a subedar. Hmm. Very few examples of somebody uh, from a who was a Shinde managing to become a subedar. And of course, Maharaji Shinde. And before that, right from the time Nebaji Shinde onward, we find that these Indias have made the biggest contribution to the Maratha Empire. And these Indias, okay. to the end. Uh, you know, loyal to the Peshwai. Hmm. It was in fact combination of Nana Fadnis, a Brahmin, and Maharaji Shinde, which managed to thwart the British for a good twenty-five years in the eighteenth century. That's right. We find that there was a Kaikwad ruler in Baroda, and of course, if they had so much internal problems of caste, it is quite impossible to have built that empire and ruled over it for close to hundred years. And uh, in fact, except the Brahman Peshwa, we find that most of these rulers are not uh, Brahmin at all. They are from various castes, Marathas, and even other castes. Yeah, and there was a lot of autonomy also given, right? Which is why uh, Indore became an independent sanstan, Gwalior became an independent sanstan, Badoda became an independent sanstan, where the rulers had uh, a lot of autonomy. So it wasn't like it was totally centralized and. Uh, the people who were sitting in pune were tightly controlling everything when they were going on right uh, over a period of time it became more and more autonomous mm -hmm. what time period are taking when you are talking about the days of chhatrapati rajaram all these names are already becoming famous in the closing years of that war with the mughals and under chhatrapati shahu they are not as tightly bound as under chhatrapati shivaji but still they are more or less under centralized rule. Hmm. After Panipat, it becomes much more looser. And okay. over a of time, the central authority, because of the weakening of this authority in Pune, we find that the various parts, uh, you know, tend to be autonomous administratively. Because we find that as late as 1795, 1795, we find the Battle of Kharada, where uh, Holkar, Shinde, the Peshwa, even help from the Gaikwad Raghuji Bosle, that is a different Raghuji Bosle than the one we talked about earlier. Uh, the Bosleys of Nagpur, all of them combined to defeat the Nizam. So, this kind of unity exists within the Maratha Empire right up to 1795. Uh, unfortunately, okay. there is a caste based narrative on it, which is not entirely correct because you find that the Maratha Empire would not be possible uh, if not for all the other factors. So. The success and the decline, both of the Maratha Empire belong to uh, Maharashtra as a whole, in fact, India as a whole. The other thing that I want to talk 
I want you to talk about is also the contribution of women rulers. For example, Tara Rani's heroic fight against the Mughals after uh, Rajaram passed on. And also Ahilabai's tremendous contribution to dharma everywhere. And we see it even today. Everywhere you go from Kanyakumari to Badrinath to Puri or to Gaya, you will see some temple which has been renovated by Ahilabai, some dharmashala, some ghat built. It's tremendous the kind of work that she did in her years that is benefiting the Hindus of this country even today. So could you talk a little bit about that, about Tararani as well as uh, Ahilabai? So... Tarabai was born in 1674, the same year that Chhatrapati uh, Shivaji was coronated. And as you know, the Mughals attacked in 1680. There was a long war with the Mughals. Chhatrapati uh, Sambhaji got captured and he was killed in a very inhuman manner by Aurangzeb. in fact, uh, went so far as to put out his eyes and cut out his tongue and then skin him alive. Then he was left like that for 10-15 days. And the whole aim of this was to demoralize the Marathas, which did not happen. Right. And the opposite happened in that whatever small differences they had under Chhatrapati Shivaji, uh, sorry, Sabhaji, they put aside and uh, united once again. This was the period uh, between 1690 to 1700, where you have uh, Chhatrapati Rajaram fighting against the Mughals. Now, Rajaram also died 1700 at Simhagat. Now it was surmised that the Marathas don't really have a ruler. Hmm. Because uh, Chhatrapati Shahu, who later became Chhatrapati Shahu, he was under a Mughal prison with Aurangzeb. Uh, Rajaram had died. Marani Tarabai was 25 years old at this point of time, 26 or 25 years old. And uh, she said that I'm going to put my nine-year-old son on the throne and I will continue the struggle. We're talking about the Mughal army facing against a 26-year-old woman. And she, in fact, led the armies personally many times. She sent letters to the various forces that we are going to continue fighting. We are not going to give up as yet on this. Uh, she went to the forts with sword in hand. She knew how to ride horses. She knew how to uh, fight with the sword. And she inspired the men to continue fighting what had been a struggle that had by then become 20 years old. And uh, the entire land was completely finished as part of this warfare. And for seven years, she managed to fight against somebody like Aurangzeb. In fact, Aurangzeb's last campaign was begun in 1700. Hmm. He was some 80 years old. And uh, he personally led his campaign in 1700, thinking that now there is Tarabai, a woman, 25 year old woman on the throne. It is going to be easy for us. But he found out to his surprise that all the forts which he could take within four or five years went back to the Marathas under the leadership of Tarabai. So Tarabai, of course, Tarabai Bosle was a very um, big influence on the Marathas. And uh, she, in fact, managed to steer them in the last part of this warfare, which could have gone either way, which could have, in fact, ended with defeat for the Marathas. And uh, later on, of course, we find that the more uh, equally famous person is uh, Devi Ayendabai Holkar. Mm. Again, talk about how things get separated. Uh, to be able to construct uh, those temples all around India, uh, political supremacy has to be established. I think Absolutely. for establishing a Ram Mandir at Ayodhya shows us uh, what this exactly means. 
Yes. With independent India, with a lot of things, finally a mandir is getting built over there. It's something that was not possible in the past 300, 400 years for the simple reason that political supremacy was not with the Hindus. So when you see, uh, it is not a case of she built hundreds of temples. So it is a symbol that the Maratha ruled both achievements of Peshwa Bajira and Peshwa Madhura Maji Sinde are now getting a coating or a crown, in fact, of cultural. Okay. The foundation is political. Foundation is military, and mm. having got this entire land by fighting hundreds of battles, some of which are covered in the book, battles of mm. the Maratha Empire. Having established this political supremacy, what do the Marathas do with it? Is that somebody like Devi Ayyappan Hoker builds hundreds of temples, uh, maybe not hundreds, but many temples and dharmas, andhasetras, and really drives the point home that. now the mogal rule has come to an end and all these uh, factors all these institutions which were persecuted under mogal rule we had 1692 we are talking about a farman going against the jagannathpuri temple and we find that in a 70s jagannathpuri temple gets donations from ayla bai worker in 1669 there is a farman for demolishing the kashi vishwanath temple And in hundred years later, Devi Ayyappa Hoker has built a temple next to that one. That's uh, right. So this is a sign that the women were really uh, influential also in Maratha history, politically yeah. also, politically also, and even in the cultural field, uh, they had a very strong influence. They were not something separate from the men of the uh, house household Maratha rules, and. Uh, their contribution of course is as great if not greater than others in fact of tarabai bhosle uh, the historian yadunath sarkar has written that she achieved so much in 7 years that if she had not been a woman in fact the only problem that was that she was a woman that's why she could not continue ruling as yeah. tarabai bhosle she had to go for a regent and then this led to chatrapati shahu becoming chatrapati that's right and uh, before that of course we find that uh, jizamata of course uh, was a huge influence on chatrapati shivaji also and yes. coming because of this we find uh, the rani of jhansi jhansi that's right it's uh-huh. it's a, it's a it's a it's a full arc actually that starts from jizamata and ends with the rani of lakshmibai with everybody right. in between throughout we find that women are uh, very important throughout uh, Maratha history. I think on that note, uh, we need to move on to question and answers. Um, I was going to speak a little bit, but it, it's been a wonderful one hour, and I am not sure where the one hour passed away. So it's been an excellent discussion. We've had a lot of response from the attendees too. So I, instead of asking any questions from my end to Anish, I'll move on to the uh, question and answer sessions itself. and i'll read out i'll take i've taken up i've chosen a few questions i'll read them out to you uh, anish um uh so subhashish datta asks you uh, in my mind the hill forts aligned to a defensive posture they perhaps made it less easier to defend territory would that be a correct, correct assumption uh does the book touch upon the offensive posture of maratha kings and the associated strategy right 
uh, but your fill forts are meant for offense as well as defense uh, depending on how they were used for example you fight uh, that yes uh, some of the hill forts were for defending the border as such a uh, very good example of how a fort was used for an offensive measure is the battle of pratapgarh which i have covered in the book where the fort is used as an instrument to defeat afzal khan it is not just a case of holding out against afzal khan at pratapgarh in fact he leaves his defensive posture his defensive posture is at rajgarh which is north near pune that is a completely defensive line of forts well inside his own territories which he will which he is well stocked which is well guarded but that is very defensive thinking what chatrapati shivaji does is he moves to pratapgarh this is at his border this is a new fort and now the entire strategy changes and he find that how he manages to use this fort effectively to launch attack on afzal khan's army so yes uh, depending on uh, how they were used the forts were used uh, both ways defensively as and offensively also okay there is another question by indranil shikare he asked why did marathas keep propping up mughals in delhi rather than placing a north indian dharmic like a rajput or a sikh on the throne good question yeah very good question okay again uh, this topic also i have covered in that book uh, as a part yeah i know the last chapter you have but it, it didn't get covered in that discussion so i took up the question sure absolutely right uh, so now uh, we had this war with the mughals mughal maratha war extended from 1680 to 1707 then we find that the marathas established themselves and a treaty signed by chatrapati shahu under the mediation of the peshwa bhaji vishwanath in 1719 and what this treaty says is that the six subahs of the deccan belong to the marathas is that they have revenue rights over the entire deccan and uh, they accept the mughal as nominal ruler plus they agree to put some kind of for, uh, forces 500 or 1000 soldiers under uh, a subahdar at aurangabad who is going to protect the mughal and secondly certain amount of money is going to come to the marathas so what it means is that the entire deccan now belongs to the marathas there is a sanad to that effect now why i can do this is that the marathas at this point of time although they have emerged victorious in the war they are not yet out of the woods they cannot afford to start fighting again with whatever remains of the mughal empire so this creates a kind of a nursery a kind of a safe zone within the sadara kolapur region which uh, creates you no know, a basis for the empire next we find that peshwa bajirao starts expanding northwards by 1740 by the time peshwa bajirao dies the marathas have by law the rights to collect revenue from the entire region north of narmada up to the yamuna and by and large this rule expands we find again in the 1750s 1737 the marathas ruled delhi 1750s again this rule is reiterated 1772 maharaj singh brings the mughal emperor to delhi for the war so so why continue doing all this first thing is that when the marathas start going northwards the mughal darbar consists of irani and turani factions a large number of second rung mughal nobles are actually afghans turks etc 
One thing the Marathas want to guard against is all these Mughal remnants who have now become second um, Nawabs and Subedars and whatnot to combine under some religious banner and try to again attack the Marathas. So they need to play off the Irani Turani faction against each other and take as much as the empire from the Mughals as possible before finally going for the final blow. It is not so easy that you remove the Mughal and put somebody in his place because obviously that's going to create a lot of trouble all around Delhi. Now Delhi at this point of time is a very risky and place full of anarchy. There are Afghans attacking from the northwest. There are Marathas attacking. There are some of the other um, Rohila or some Pathan Nawab from uh, today's Uttar Pradesh. So unless the entire country is settled, there is no point in going and replacing the throne and just catching hold of a hot potato. Especially when the capital has, de facto capital has now moved to Pune. In fact, Tukoji Hokar in 1770 writes a letter that, that uh, the Marathas attempted to remove the Mughal at around the time of Panipat, which is why a lot of these uh, Muslim Nawabs <coughs> then had to rally to the banner of Ahmad Shah Abdali. We find that the Afghans are also in a position to replace the Mughal, but they do not do so. Nadir Shah actually sits on the throne, but eventually gives up the throne. And then the British also do the same. So we find the multiple powers have not touched that throne because it has some importance and they do not want to get hold of an anarchic city. <coughs> I believe that covers the question. Okay. Uh, I will take a last question. I think you are also quite tired after speaking for one hour. Uh, for one more topic uh, regarding the Sindhis and the British which is uh, Sindhi and the British in uh, something there have been a bit of controversy on this also in the past that uh, the Sindhi household has been pro-British. Uh, so I actually wanted to touch uh, maybe one or two minutes on that. Is that possible? Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Right. Uh, mainly because of this uh, movie that we have Malikarnika in which they showed that the uh, Sindhi ruler at Gwalaer was entirely pro-British. And uh, but and that has got a corollary that the British uh, and uh, Sindhias were always in alliance with each other. So a bit of history over here. One thing is that um, you're talking about 1857. A couple of years prior to that, we had somebody called Baijabai Sindhi, and what she did was that she tried to get a lot of saints towards Mathura. And Vajabai uh, Shinde actually tried to sow the seeds of the 1857, a couple of years prior to it, by trying to get all these Mahans and Saints together at one place in Mathura. In 1857, talking about uh, Rani Lakshmi Bai, she went to Gwalaer from Jhasi. And uh, the general narrative is that uh, she had to fight for the fort of Gwalaer for three days. And then after fighting for three days, she entered the fort, which is not entirely correct. What really happened was that Jyotirav Shinde actually came out of the fort. He knew his army was entirely anti-British. Even then, he came out of the fort with his entire army to fight Akhetope with the result that on the battlefield, nobody fought anyone, but the entire Gwalaer army went to the side of Akhetope. 
and uh, what this shows is that he had a sort of tacit understanding a tacit support for the revolutionaries and so the charge that these indias were entirely in uh, cahoots with the british is totally wrong and before that uh, the sindhya household fought against the british at laswari delhi assai <coughs> in fact most of the battles of the second anglo maratha war which or uh, decided india between the british and the marathas were fought by these sindhyas and uh, before that also in vadga we find marji shinde fighting against the british so this is one point i wanted to cover in the talk here. okay uh, i think we have one last question and then we'll wind up by 6:10 because we have another webinar coming up uh, for of indica yoga uh, so yogesh athawle asked anish you've described that the british were fighting the marathas um, from north to south in, in the latter decades of the 18th century and early 19th i think it's 17th and 18th not 19th then why did the marathas align with the british and the nizam of hyderabad in 1799 to wage a campaign against the sultan of mysore in the battle of sirangapatnam yeah so this basically was a result of a treaty triumvirate treaty signed between nana fadnis uh, uh sorry british and the nizam which had its origins in 1791 at a point when uh, tipu sultan was considered an enemy of the marathas of course uh, tipu sultan did a lot of many things which were not in tune in fact not just tipu sultan but the marathas were opposed to hyder ali also his father and uh, madhavrao peshwa scored a number of uh, memorable victories against hyder ali uh, this was a political alliance made for the purpose <coughs> of defeating tipu sultan uh, which resulted in the sirangapatnam raid of 1799 okay so uh, with this uh, we will wrap up today's um, uh, webinar session we are looking for some new authors reviewers to review uh, anish's new book so any of the attendees if you have already purchased and read the book now that you've had a chance to also interact with anish i would urge you to write a review uh, of the book for us for indic today um and uh, we shall be announcing our next uh, session soon in the next couple of days please do keep uh, go reading our website www.indictoday.com and log in to our next session also thanks a lot shefali uh, for uh, coming on the session and having a conversation with anish uh, thanks anish for being here thank you thank you yogini thank you anish and all the best anish for your future endeavors thank you thanks sir